Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. The pandemic has made it more evident than ever how important it is to focus on mental and behavioral health. Along with other legislative working groups, NAHU's Mental Health Task Force, which was first created last year, explores legislative and regulatory developments as they relate to mental health parity in the market. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Dee Dee Kennedy and Tracy Palizzi joins us to discuss the task force, the work they've done thus far, and the results of an important all-member survey. So first, thank you so much for being on the podcast. For those who are not familiar, do you mind introducing yourself and talking a bit about the work that the Mental Health Task Force does? Sure. Thanks for having us today. My name is Dee Dee Kennedy. I'm president of Benesis Health Insurance Services, and I'm currently serving as the NAHU Legislative Council's Mental Health Task Force Chair. We are in our infancy. Tracy's going to introduce the actual specifics. One of the things that drew me to become a part of this movement and to become a part of this task force is that at one time in my career, I was director of contract management for a psychiatric hospital. And then I moved back over to the payer side with a TPA and then eventually on the consumer side and the policyholder side as a broker. So mental health has always been a major area of interest to me and we had a need to have a focus group on this, and I'm super grateful that NHU brought this committee forward. And with that, I'm going to pass over to Tracy to introduce herself. Hi, I'm Tracy Palizzi. I have been in the industry since 2013. I am the president for Custom Benefits. A little about why I joined the Mental Health Task Force is it's very dear to my heart. I do a lot of advocacy when it comes to eating disorders and knowing and being on the health insurance end, I see the struggles and difficulties that a lot of clients, groups, and consumers face on a daily basis. So the Mental Health Task Force is now nearly one year old. Would you mind going over some of the things that the task force has done in that time? Sure. So I guess I should start with our mission statement first. The mission statement for the task force is to advocate and respond to legislative and regulatory issues affecting members, clients, communities, families, and coordinate with related NAHU committees and task force in order to educate members regarding the growing mental health crisis within our nation. We are less than a year in our committee. And I have to say that there has been a lot of work that has already been put forth. There was an article developed for the Washington Update related to issues regarding testing, shutdown, and mental health care. The survey was sent out to all the members, and we got a great response back. In July of 2020, the task force has worked with Jessica Waltman and government affairs in developing comments for the draft for the Mental Health Parity and Addictions Equality Act, 
self-compliance tool, including the non-quantitative treatment limitations review. The task force has also begun tracking bills that have been introduced in the House of Representatives, Congress, and also on the state level, and seeing where we might be able to input as NAHU members or help with those issues. We've been inviting guest speakers to our task force to understand and to see where other struggles may lie and how we may be able to help improve those areas. And April 15th of 2021, the task force developed a written comment with government affairs for the House of Representatives Health Committee hearing on the expansion access to mental health and behavioral health. And we're also working on a segment for the NAHU Virtual Annual Convention. And Dee, would you like to add some stuff to that? Certainly. A lot of what we wanted to do initially was to learn what we didn't know and to have an opportunity to glean information from our members, to listen what problems are our members experiencing in the communities that they're in. And that then would help us inform our positions, inform our activities. And I'm very excited about the session that we're putting together for the annual convention because it will contain a session that'll have a lot of broker training. So look for that. It's going to be a really great session on mental health care, how to support clients that are experiencing problems. What's our role? What's not our role? Some structural information. Again, look for that. It's going to be really impactful. Sounds like a lot of really good stuff. So the task force put out a survey to all NHU members with some basic questions, mostly regarding access to mental health services and network adequacy. What was the overall goal of this survey? The goal was to ask our members what they are seeing in their communities and in their practice. We knew that there were a lot of things that we were unfamiliar with. And so we put it out to listen and to develop a series of, I guess, problems that we would want to then fix in addition to informing our positions from a legislative perspective, in addition to our activities on an educational basis with our members. What did the results of the survey say to you? Did you find them surprising or did they pretty much confirm what you already thought? I was not surprised by what the survey came back with, but what really surprised me is the lack of networks and providers in the areas. If you looked at the survey, the suburban areas, which account for 52% of our households nationwide, came back higher than what I would expect the rural or the suburban areas to come back. So I was a little surprised by the struggle and lack of providers and networks that are out there in the suburban area to help people. And I would kind of add to that, that we had almost 81% of our membership that answered the survey indicated that mental health is important to their clients. We then had 85% of our membership in the survey say that mental health care is important to them individually and personally. What I found surprising was how many of our clients don't think to ask us about it, don't think to make it a priority in their benefit planning strategies. And in the survey, the information shows that 77% of our membership say that clients will only talk about it if I bring it up 
or they don't talk about it very often. So 77.3% indicated that it's not a regular topic of conversation. I'm hoping that that then will change as we continue to equip our membership on ways that they supportive and able to talk about it. And, and that's what our training this summer is all about. A couple of things that really stuck out to me in relation to the survey results, I found this to be expected, was that 64% of our membership are experiencing problems in accessing care due to utilization review problems. And it ranges from being uncertain about the criteria for authorizations, what does medical necessity constitute in a mental health setting, then navigating the bureaucracy of insurance company departments, lack of continuity between levels of care and providers of that care, then on to the appeals process being too hard to navigate, then narrow or incorrect interpretation by insurance companies related to the utilization review activities. All of these things point to what the NQTL analysis is getting at. So I think we're going to see some changes here, but we are able to concretely say our membership is saying that utilization review and authorizations are a problem. They're affecting continuity of care, which will for sure translate into an issue with quality outcomes. Another area that was expected and confirmed, as Tracy was mentioning, is the area of network adequacy. We have a very high percentage of our respondents indicating that there are too few providers in their area. And we have zero that say that they are fully adequately staffed with mental health treatment, substance use treatment in all of the different specialties. So we, we literally don't have any area of the country that isn't experiencing some lack. In one of the questions we put in the survey, we noted the average length of time it takes for someone with symptoms to seek or receive treatment is 11 years. And when I read that, I was shocked by that. I had never heard that before. I know we asked the members this, but what do you think causes that delay? It was a interesting question to see the responses on, Dan. There was one comment that said, I don't believe it. Yeah, I, I categorically reject that that is the truth. And it was so strong of a response, I literally Googled it and wanted to, you know, double check that we had used accurate data. And indeed we had. It is one of the leading data points on the front page for NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. But back to the point is that the 11 year duration from when symptoms start to the point that treatment begins I really individually feel as though there is an inability for most of us to know when we've crossed over the line and that we're needing care and that our family systems are such that there's a lot of denial and a lot of pull up your bootstraps and just push on through it instead of recognizing that care on a preventive basis or early on would reap greater benefits down the line. And we did have our membership identify 84% or almost 85% of our respondents indicated that they felt that stigma was the major contributing factor to the delay in treatment and care. We then had an inability of the patient and family, caretaker, friends 
to navigate the system. Following that closely, we had access to in-network providers with open appointments. We had a lot of comments and anecdotal notes about the waiting time and everybody's full practices. And then we also had a, a lot of folks point to the fact that there's a lack of specialty care that specifically meets their needs. But again, my personal, I think it's denial. I think it's an inability to know when something has emerged enough to get into care. Tracy, I think I'm going to pass the question on to you. What is it that you feel causes the delay in care? Well, I'm going to have to agree with you on all those points. I think a big one is stigma, the fear of being held out, pointed out, affordability, and lack of understanding their benefits and what they can actually utilize from their benefits to get the help that they need. And lack of specialists. I think specialists are very important. Anybody can go see any therapist, but if that therapist isn't specialized in a mental health situation or illness that needs that specialty care, sometimes that can do more harm than good. And so then the continuity of care is longer than if they were seeing someone who was specialized in a field. I think that that's really hard to navigate. Families and loved ones don't generally know where to start or where to go. Absolutely. And looking at the data from the survey, and we had 53% of our respondents point to cost of care as a major problem that their clients were experiencing. So that dovetails exactly into your comments. And most most providers that give that specialty don't even accept insurance. So that's another hurdle and another issue that families go through. Last week, NAHU, with the assistance of the task force, submitted written testimony to the House Subcommittee on Health, Employment, Labor, and Pensions, otherwise known as HELP, as you mentioned before, Tracy. In our comments, we emphasized the importance of continuity of care, network adequacy, and telebehavioral health, among other things. Didi, what were some specifics that you thought Congress ought to consider? It's such a broad range. And so we wanted to create a couple of easily actionable items. One of the areas that we felt was super important to address was continuity of care. And there potentially is an easy fix here. So we wanted it to be contained in our comments. The current situation is when a denial occurs, when a request for either a step down to another level of care or an escalation to a higher level of care, if the utilization review entity denies that access to care, it gets put into an appeal process that mirrors the time frame under medical, which is 30 days. And when we're looking at mental health, that can create a cessation of treatment in the interim. Normally, the uh, therapist or the facility will turn to the financially responsible party and indicate you are able to continue treatment if you assume financial responsibility while we're working this out through the appeal process. And most families don't have the financial wherewithal to take on that financial burden in addition to most families don't have the comfort level and 
confidence in the healthcare system that the uh, denial will be indeed overturned. And so the thought of taking on full responsibility for care during a 30-day appeal process typically means that the patient gets discharged and walks away from treatment until the end of the appeal process. And during that episode of lack of care, there can be tremendous backslides in clinical gains. There can be an escalation of acuity where an individual can become suicidal or can begin to cut or relapse uh, when it relates to substance use. So gaps in care created by a 30-day appeal process is something that we feel is actionable and somewhat easy to address. So our recommendation to Congress was to expedite all appeals when they related to mental health. We also feel that expediting all admission requests related to mental health would also be an important way to increase access and quality outcomes from care. Additional kinds of things that we included in our written comment network adequacy, and we touched on this briefly before, but we know that there is a tremendous problem with compensation, that the level of compensation is deemed inadequate by most providers, and therefore they don't accept any contracts. A lot of the the providers just take no insurance at all. And partially it's because of compensation schedules, but also there's no guarantee of that payment and the administrative process to get payment takes a lot of time and it's not compensated time. So it further dilutes the compensation that they do get. So much of what we see in network adequacy, the compensation guarantee of payment and administrative simplification, we are hoping is something that the NQTL, the non-qualitative treatment limit assessments, we're really hoping that that will illuminate and bring change in some of those areas. But we, again, wanted to make sure that we address the issues of network adequacy, as well as some of the standards in care. The vast majority of medication management in the country is being overseen by a primary care physician. And the primary care physicians traditionally are not using a series of tests that enable them to quantify the outcome of a given medication. And if you've ever experienced looking at psychotropic drugs, it's a trial and error and uh, really needs some standardized testing in the middle of it which most of the psychiatrists will do, but very few of the primary care physicians will do while they're managing medication. So we feel like adding testing and additional standards of care, particularly in medication prescriptions, would be helpful to improve outcomes in the nation. And this past Tuesday, you and a friend of NAHU, Jessica Waltman from Forward Health Consulting, hosted a member-exclusive compliance corner webinar on the Mental Health Parity Non-Quantitative Treatment Limitations, aka NQTL Analysis. Do you mind briefly going over what was covered in this webinar and why it's important, particularly to folks who are generally unfamiliar with mental health parity? So I'm grinning, Dan, because there is no brief description. So to ask me to (laughs) succinctly (laughs) present this is a challenge. But let's look at uh, what that session was about. There is an, an analysis, a comparative analysis on 
treatment limitations. One of the things that the Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act required as of 2008 was that all plans that the Mental Health Parity Act applied to had to have the same level of benefits with medical surgical as they do with mental health. And there was a series of different plan designs that were left out of that. The Mental Health Parity Act basically addressed large groups with self-funded ERISA plans. However, come the Affordable Care Act in about 2010, the essential health benefits were required in the ACA to include mental health. And therefore, the Mental Health Parity Act was then extended to all plans fully insured of all sizes, including self-funding, of course. But it also includes all individual plans, except any plans that were grandfathered. So grandfathered plans don't have to have essential health benefits, whether it's an individual or family plan or whether it's an employer-sponsored plan. So in order for mental health parity to really encapsulate its intent, there has been a long time sensation that the different entities were not complying. The one area that was easy to comply were the quantitative treatment limits. Things like we're going to limit therapy to 50 visits a year without having that same 50 visit limitation over on the medical surgical side. So you can only see your primary care 50 times in a given year. So the quantitative kinds of things, the plan design provisions were easy for insurance companies and plan sponsors, including employers sponsoring fully insured plans. The quantitative treatment limits were easy to address and eliminate. Now, the harder side of this is the non-quantitative treatment limits. This is much of what we've been talking about regarding utilization review and the fail-first requirements on medications. If you have a fail-first requirement on a medication that is for mental health, you have to have the comparable fail-first limit on your non-mental health, on your regular medical surgical medications. And so it's truly bringing a level of oversight to mental health and substance use treatment that hadn't been there before. And in December of 2020, the large stimulus bill that President Trump signed, the CAA, included specific note in its huge number of pages, but it included direct instruction that the non-quantitative treatment limits for mental health, the comparative analysis that had been detailed previously on a voluntary basis, now, as of this point forward, was going to not just be a best practice, it was going to be a requirement. And in that CAA, it designated 45 days. Okay, plan sponsors. Okay, insurance carriers. Okay, behavioral health carve-outs. You've got 45 days to develop this NQTL comparative analysis and make it available not just to regular of labor, but also to plan sponsors and also to members who might be having problems. Well, that 45-day time frame came and went as of February 10th of 2021. So we are already in the time period where behavioral health utilization review entities and insurance companies and employers, the sponsors of plans, are supposed to be able to produce an NQTL comparative analysis along with the accompanying documentation upon demand. And so just please watch that webinar. 
it's very detailed. It's important. We feel as though there are significant employer requirements along with all of our large groups, small group, and Medicare clients. Everybody that has a plan that is subject to Mental Health Parity Act is definitely in the category of where these documents need to be produced. So we as agents and brokers and consultants need to be able to understand that and know what to ask for and where to turn for those materials. And you can find that webinar on NAHU.org under Membership Resources and then Webinars. So for those who are listening who may be interested in getting involved with the Mental Health Task Force, how can NAHU members apply? This is Marcy, and they can apply through the NAHU website. We also have an article in every Friday's Washington update that goes through and describes what the Legislative Council is and each of our working groups, including, of course, the Mental Health Task Force. And in that article, there's also a link that takes you directly to the application process where you can indicate which working group you're applying for. We're also putting together some emails that will go out to a number of folks that are already involved in our working groups and regional legislative calls. You should also be getting something in your email for all members, just as a reminder to apply for the working groups. And we'll probably also see a few posts on social media. So a lot of places to keep your eyes peeled, but definitely that Friday Washington update that goes to all members. And the deadline to apply is May 15th. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we're toasting to all of the NHU members who responded to the survey about mental health services in their practice. We sincerely appreciate it. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.